Making Sense of Chaos is a podcast exploring anything and everything but dinner table talk. It's a conversation about death and dying, love, grief and hope. And the beauty and terror of realising that everyone you know will die. Eventually memories of our existence and who we are will cease to exist and that may be challenging for many. However, there seems to be a certain peace with knowing that no matter what we do, now, tomorrow, in a week's time, it will soon be forgotten. The absolute terror or the absolute comfort that this provides is one of many things that we discuss on this episode with Ike, who so generously lets us in on his world and also lets us in on the intimate ways in which death has shaped his world. Ike starts by introducing himself. I recently turned 25, which means I am half a century old, which is a bit frightening, but also, I mean, I suppose I should say exciting. Um, I'm at university, I'm doing um, Masters of Teaching, English and Literature is um, sort of my area. Um, outside of uni, I work at um, a synagogue as sort of director of um, youth and young millennials programs. Um, and I keep myself busy with a lot of writing, um, drawing as well, um, occasionally music. Um, so thankfully during these COVID times, I've not been bored at all. Yeah. And obviously... COVID is something that's really magnified our awareness of death um, all around the world. But on a personal level, like, when was the first time that you recall really thinking about death? Long time, I guess. I mean, I, I suppose I was aware of it at a young age as much as anyone can be aware of it as a young age. I mean, early childhood, I mean, it took the form of hiding under the covers um, during the hurricane scene in The Wizard of Oz, hmm. which was completely um, horrifying to me. And bad weather. My mum tells me that when I was a child, I was just fixated with the weather reports and any kind of uh, bad weather just threw me. I just um, completely distressed me. And the only reason I can think of is that yeah as a child I, I i mean i was aware of the fact that it can all end it does all end and can happen um through you know freak circumstances yeah. um so it, yeah it's been something i've always thought about as i've gotten older it's been sort of it's been more textured by you know obviously experiences when I mean, you start experiencing things in more um, more, you start experiencing things more intensely as you, you get older, 
Um, but I think because it's constantly at the forefront of whatever I'm working on, I mean, it is something that, yeah, I think about it. You know, I think about it a lot. Ike, have you had any experiences with death one-on-one? Have you had to face it in your personal life or have you had to acknowledge it from a, from a practical, in-your-face point of view? Um, well, the two experiences I talk about are sort of rather unfantastical. I mean, one was the death of a grandfather, which most of us have experienced. Um, one was the death of a great-great-aunt. Both were different. My great-great-aunt died when I was 13, my grandfather when I was 19. So they were very different. And one was um, very, um, you know, presentable. There had been, um, you know, the body had been prepared for the casket and there had been some fluid pumped into the cheeks and a bit of colouring splashed through her hair and it, it looked very peaceful, very calm. Um, but I, I do remember feeling I want to see the body. I want to see her body. I was very interested in that and in what it looked like. And um, my grandfather's death, which was different because it was sudden, particularly traumatic. It was in the waiting room at the hospital, then being given the news, then the opportunity to go and see the body. Um, so they were very different. But I, I mean, those two think th- those two deaths have been central. And then I always remember when I was maybe seven um, or eight, my mother had a friend whose sister commit suicide. And in a moment, of um, uncontrollable um, anguish and distress. Um, she told me that, that her sister Vivian, who I knew had, had committed suicide, I'd only seen her about a week earlier. Um, and obviously at the time, you know, looking back, it was probably not, you know, the sort of thing that you share with a seven or eight year old, obviously not upfront like that. But I do remember that. I remember processing that. Um, ghastly information and how did you process that as a (laughs) seven-year-old I wet my pants (laughs) I remember the I remember feeling so ashamed at telling my mum that I had just not I there was nothing else to do I didn't it was just a completely physical response um was to you know we my little pants there was uh, i just i couldn't so i mean yes the the connection with her was was not so distressing i mean it was more so that i'd seen her a week earlier and she'd babysat me in her house and um then a week or so later she decided to end everything and the news had been given to me very matter-of-factly so yeah i have thought about that a lot and these things are um, things that I always like to come back to whether it's for writing whether it's for art um, you know it's all interesting to me. In that incident when you were seven have you further mm-hmm. so the, the, the interest around death did that propel from that point did have you found more details around her death around the circumstances as you've as you've got older since that point? 
Um, yes, yeah. I mean, I do remember vaguely at the time being told bits and pieces, you know, of the of the police breaking in through the window and making the discovery and things like that. I, I mean, it's just, it's too far back to remember what um, formative impact it had, what, it, what impact it had sort of intellectually, mm-hmm. but I just remember the, yeah, I just remember the event as shocking. Um, similar, I think, in the way that I, I mean, I can very, very, very vaguely remember the morning of um, September the 11th, 2001, um, and not knowing what the, not knowing what it was that I was watching on the TV in my parents' room, but remembering my mother crying as she put her makeup on and remember looking at the, the towers sort of literally torn from the skyline and feeling as if this, it was ghastly, that, that it was something terrible, that it was calamity. Um, so I think, yeah, we, we, we do always return subconsciously or consciously, we always return to the earliest experience, the earliest exposure to the, um, I guess it's really the single terrifying defining fact of life is that we're, we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess, you know, with those events, it's interesting that you mention writing and creativity alongside them because mm. writing and creativity is sometimes a way of gaining an understanding of something that's so terrible and, and shocking. I mean, you know, this podcast has got Making Sense of Chaos. So yeah. have, have you found that it's a way to actually give you some kind of um, grounding or, or some kind of perspective on what happened? Um, I mean, yes, the, the act of writing through it or drawing through it, uh, making something out of it. I mean, yeah, it, it, does, it does refine the way that you see and remember certain experiences, the way you write about them, the way that you... Um, you know, tackle them in whatever it is, you know, you're doing if you are writing or doing something like this, a podcast. I mean, the more you think about it and the more you intellectualise it, the more it, it, it does make sense. Um, but I think it's very much, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I write through it um, or I draw through it. I just try and work through it. And mm. it is all... Um, I mean, I don't, it, it sounds funny to say, but I mean, I do feel that it's, it's good practice. Um, I think that often if you read memoirs, autobiographies of people who are knowing, that, who know that they're dying, when they're dying, um, as in I think they reflect, they can't help but reflect back. You've got to reflect backwards. Mm. And I think that p- people feel you know, I think it's, it shouldn't be dismissed, the idea of working through it to be, you know, to be prepared, not, you know, that we should live every day thinking that we're going to die tomorrow. But um, I think it's all invaluable. Um, I, yeah, I think it's all invaluable to try and internalise it. So, so are you saying that trying to understand death 
when you see it occur close to you is a way of actually preparing for your own death. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and not, I mean, you can't really say that without it sounding self-centred or narcissistic or as if, you know, you are the centre of attention, but um, our deaths are our deaths. Hmm. And we've all seen, witnessed good deaths and we've all seen bad deaths. And um, you can't necessarily choose the nature of your dying, but you want to be prepared. And, um, I mean, I think that, you know, if someone, you know, is, I mean, I don't know whether it's, you say, lucky enough to die a long sort of prolonged death of an illness where one can mentally prepare and, you know, work through whether it's their bucket list or the, you know, the litany of things that they want to say to their friends and loved ones or whether it's lucky to be, you know, struck by a car and to die instantly, painlessly. I don't know, but um, I think in the manner of our own dying, um, yeah, I mean, I think to intellectualise it and to try and work through it um, is is very helpful, yeah. Yeah, and I think that um, a lot of it is to do with um, building up your defences as well for when someone you love actually dies inevitably. Um, yeah. You know, whether that's your parents, your grandparents, your friend, um, it's it's a way of, okay, let me just see all the possible scenarios of, of how they might die or even how I yes. might die. It's funny how I'm putting it in terms of yes. them, not me. Um, yeah. And then I can kind of psychologically be armed. Yes. However much we try to escape our parents or our grandparents in life. I mean, often they reclaim us in the manner of our dying, um, whether it's some sort of, I don't know, potentially berserk organ or some dodgy genetic material that's <laughs> part, you know, some... Yeah, so true. Um, and... I mean, you, you you can't pretend to be more interested in this topic. Um, I mean, you one's just got to be honest about it. And so, I I mean, I think about these things a lot. I'm very much I'm very scared of having a stroke mm. because my grandma had a stroke. It didn't kill her, but I'm I'm just very very frightened of having a stroke. I'm very scared of having a heart attack. Um, then again, I'm also very scared of dying in a in a plane crash. So I mean, there are lots <laughs> lots of things I'm scared of. But it's funny that you know, strokes and heart attacks. There's just something about there's something about them that I'm very very fearful of them and really don't want to die um, that way. Like, what about the notion of acceptance? Um, we've spoken to, to, to different. Um, a multitude of different people who will have a different understanding of death and, and choose to, um, I suppose, surmise and, and reflect on, on death on all different um, levels. Uh, you, your, your fear of having a, having a stroke or, or dying in a plane crash, where, where, does acceptance, where does acceptance fit into this? Or is this something that you're, you're searching for meaning, you're searching for understanding? Um, yeah, where does acceptance lie on this or is, is, there, is there none? 
Well, it's interesting because acceptance is meant to be the fifth sta- the fifth and final stage of, of grief, yeah. Um, says Kubler-Ross in her analysis, which obviously became very, very famous and widely read in the 70s. Um, so, yes, after depression and anger and bargaining and denial, yeah, we're told there is meant to come acceptance. Um, I mean, yeah, I suppose we all accept death. I mean, I don't particularly wish to live forever. I'm I'm frightened of dying young or of dying prematurely or of dying, you know, slowly and becoming, you know, imbecilic, but I don't necessarily want to live to it. I don't want to live forever, um, which I guess by extension means, um, you know, my parents also will have to one day die and get out of the way for me and for my sisters and one day they'll have to do the same so there's acceptance um i mean whether we want to accept it or not we have to accept it but i think that there should be maybe a little bit more of the bargaining and a little bit more of the denial the stuff that keeps the struggle interesting um I mean, it depends if, if, if some, I mean, there are people obviously who want to be sobered and consoled and will be through, you know, acceptance. Um, but the subjects almost in my mind, it's just too tumultuous it, for, for there to be acceptance too soon. Um, I'm sort of more interested, like I said, in the bargaining, the denial, the mm. the trying to come to terms with it, the, the trying to um, be constantly engaged and curious yeah. about it, what it feels like, what it looks like, um, and and all of the all of the symbolic implications. I mean, it's all the great art, all the great poetry, all the great writing the great music it's this dealing with this um undeniable reality that um we live we die we're remembered and then we're forgotten and it it, mm. it goes on it goes on and on mm. um so that's sort of how i um how i feel about it at least i think the forgotten thing is um is is a really interesting one um the idea that in you know 30 generations time will people know anything about you other than your name on a family tree maybe yeah. if you're lucky yeah exactly um, it's um yeah yes we're, we're we're never sure um you know we're never sh- sure when the time will come or you know how it will be but we do live with the knowledge that we will be uh at some point in time a like a grainy black and white photograph with you know someone's name scribbled on the back in blue biro but um (laughs) so true yeah beyond beyond that we we can't know and we don't know what happened and we don't know go on sorry I was going to say, with 
I, I'm sort of more with you. I think Maddie and I clearly doing this podcast, we're more in the sort of um, the search to find the sort of bargaining, the, the, the analytical side of, of death. Do, do, do you get a sense of freedom by, by, by thinking this way, by, by delving into the concepts of death? And, you know, like you said, it's never too far from your mind. Do you get a sense of freedom there? Um, there is, there's, a, there's freedom in the sense that it, it allows you to think about things in a way that's completely unrestricted. Um, yeah. And you're never going to be bored with the question and the question's never going to run out of um, realisations and, and confrontations that make us laugh you know, they humour us, but they also terrify us. Um, we're housed in these time-stamped machines um, that, I can't remember who it was, I think it might have been Flaubert, he said, no no sooner do we come into this world than bits of us start falling off, um, which seems true. Um, yeah. I mean, I suppose in a way a little bit of a grim appraisal, but it's also a bit comforting. Mm. You know? Yeah. And do you think that this, do you think that this kind of um, bargaining and this, you know, it's almost like it's a morbid enjoyment, I guess you could say, to to think about these things in such a deep way. Um, but do you think that, you would be doing it as much if if your life was um, at a stage where it, it had been you'd, you'd lived for longer. So let's say you were 90 and you'd had an extremely fulfilling life. You'd achieved everything you wanted to, um, you know, you'd had, you've had a big family and, and you'd, you've, you're just really thankful, um, but you were actually ill and you knew that you were going to die soon, do you think that that kind of questioning would still exist or does the questioning reduce when you've got everything done that you wanted to? I think the sense of anxiety and um, restlessness is something that, yes, you feel when you're younger, when everything is essentially still up for grabs. Yes. But yeah. but you do also feel as if you're at an age where you've missed certain you've allowed yourself to miss certain opportunities that that maybe um we can't change. And so it's that that sort of balancing act of yeah, real, real, realizing the, the two sides of of the coin. Um and it's a very interesting question how people confront death when they're older. Um I think if I were to live, uh, you know, relatively speaking, long and worthwhile and fulfilling life, I imagine as a man of 75, 80, I'll be, um, I'll be on far better terms with the, the fact that I'll, you know, my death will be impending. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because yeah, who's the to say that it's not over? Because yeah, yeah, you 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 wonder how much the anxiety about death is actually yeah. cor directly correlated yeah. Yeah. with having felt like 
uh, there's so many more boxes to tick and also yeah. so much yeah. that you could have done. Yeah. And I, yeah, now, now at least I have no fear of dying alone. I just have a fear of dying in, you know, some, like I said, um, flawed, in some flawed organ or in an accident or something like that. I don't fear dying alone, but I imagine as an older person, um, the, 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 the overwhelming fear will be dying alone. Um, mm. so, so the fear becomes something different. Um, yeah. All right. Does, where, where does, uh, or if you said you worked at a synagogue, where does religion fit mm. with your mortality and, and death? Um, it's an interesting question and I almost wish as if you hadn't asked, not quite, I almost wish as if you hadn't asked just because it's the hardest question to answer mm. and I just don't have it figured out. Um, I can tell you that in regards to Judaism and to the Jewish faith, um, death and mourning has always interested me. And I find the best way I could answer is that I, I, I find that death and mourning in Judaism is very, very responsive to the human condition and, and to our needs as people grieving. Um, and I find the Jewish grieving process very interesting. But if someone were to ask me, you know, because you no doubt believe in God and believe in some kind of afterlife, however literal or illiteral that may be. I mean, obviously you mustn't fear death or death may not be um, so confronting to you. If I, if someone were to ask me that, I would have to be honest and say, no, it's not, it's not exactly how I feel. Um, the two are not reconciled. Um, um, I don't, I don't uh, fear necessarily um i mean in the one sense i don't fear being dead because it's possible i won't know that i'm dead but uh there's no easy way to, to deal with that and regardless of how um persuasive or um set in stone your religious commitments are i mean you still think about you know the the, the inevitable questions which don't necessarily have answers of being dead and you know what does it feel like to to be nowhere to, to to not exist to just sort of disappear and we don't know what happens to the ones we love or where they go if they go anywhere um maybe you just cease to exist or so yeah the jewish you know any kind of religious belief in an afterlife it, it, at least doesn't it's not so consoling in regards to the the matter of actually you know being mortal and eventually dying if that makes sense mm. so not the so so, so that it doesn't allay any fears about um death itself but you mentioned that the mourning practices for you is something that is quite um consolable um, what I don't know much about them. I'm Jewish, but I don't know much about them. What What do you like about 
the way that Judaism approaches mourning? Well, a lot of the things I've, thankfully, I've not, had, I've not had to experience because a lot of the customs are particular to children or spouses. Mm. Um, so it's not something I've have, I've had to had to do. But um, yeah, there's something about Jewish funerals that they're rather brief. I don't find them to be particularly soppy. Um, I think we all think about our funerals and the um, the really hard thing to get our heads around is that we're always going to sort of think about our own funeral, but it's the one funeral we're never going to get to be at. <laughs> yes. So the process of of of, te of tearing one's garments um, as a way of signifying um, literally a, a torn heart that can then be sewed up at the end but it never looks appeals appears or feels the same um that's why i often don't think about you know people talk about getting closure um whereas i don't think you ever really get closure so to speak but the wounds are always slightly fresh so i think the act of you know actually tearing one's garments is is very powerful um, of literally burying the dead, of people having to partake in the act, the, the, the act of um, burying the dead, um, the mourner's prayer um, recited by those mourning, a prayer which is essentially a prayer about life and that life is um, mysterious and challenging and um, it's full of... Um, you know, suffering and we're born into a losing struggle, but, you know, it's the only life we have and um, it should therefore be um, enjoyed and treasured and, and looked after. Um, and, as for, I mean, this is not particular to Jewish rituals of mourning, but, I mean, anyone who knows me know that I love going to cemeteries have loved going to cemeteries since I was a little boy, used to go to cemeteries with my dad um, and never tire of being in cemeteries, of walking through them, of um, tracking down distant relatives, going to their graves, seeing what's there, seeing what can be deciphered from their headstones, trying to find photographs of them, digging it all up. Mm. Um, you get to be not just an investigator in your own life, but, but you become an investigator in the lives of those around you. On that note, like I'm just, uh, there's probably a previous question before, but um, in terms yeah. of life and er everyone's life being equal, where do you stand with that? If I was just going to put a statement out there, do you feel, have honestly, do you feel everyone, you know, everyone's life is equal? Um, yes. And if, if, and if every life isn't equal, then every life should, should be, we should live as if every life is equal. And then that, that really makes you question the whole notion of, of good versus bad. I mean, um, if someone was to 
start um, a massacre on a population? You know, should they still be treated equally when they die? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting the 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 morality versus the the respect that that just fascinates me. You know, that example that you just used, Maddie. Um, it's it's hard to not, you know, morally. Uh, what what right does someone have to be respected even under death, even under the circumstances of their last moments? Yeah. Um, I, I don't. Yes. I don't know. I don't even know how I feel about it, to be honest, because I have so, quite a, an emotional sort of not emotional, but quite a, a bodily experience to it. I I I I like to think that that everyone's equal, and probably the reason why I asked the question in the first place was was sort of some of my own biases and my own experiences because mm. I, I, I just know I'm not mm. sure I'm not sure everyone's life is equal I'm not, but, but I don't know what I find interesting actually is the link between suicide and murder and I'm not suggesting for a second that being suicidal equates to wanting to murder someone I mean that would be pretty dangerous given that suicide is the leading cause of death for most age groups um, but, you know, the, the link did get me thinking about from the, this documentary I was watching called Active Shooter, oh, yeah. um, where they looked at the massacre that happened in the States in a movie theatre. Uh, not sure if you guys remember it. Mm-hmm. Was that in the, it was the, the, the Dark Knight film, I think? Yeah, yeah the Dark Knight one. Um, and they interviewed a psychiatrist that actually worked with the shooter after the massacre. And a few interesting things came up. Number one was that he didn't kill one person. And the reason was that he noticed her smiling at him. Right. And the psychiatrist's impression of that was that the shooter just wanted to make everything completely impersonal, like to the point where he'd actually made it into a game. And he described, the shooter described this point system where killing 12 people would equal 12 points. And by smiling at him, the the woman showed that she was human and she basically ruined the game. Yeah. Um, and, and the second one was that the shooter claimed by having this game um, and this elaborate plan, he could have the perfect distraction from his suicidal thoughts. And I think, Maddie, the other part of that what was also interesting was when you talk about how how um, personal it was. When, when he did arrive to the theatre, he his his first his, the the people that he um, unfortunately killed first were the people that were most further away. You know, so it's that mm. he had people right next to him, in front of him, and he still chose mm. to. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right, right. And I guess, you know, you have to question why did he do it in a movie theatre, maybe because it's dark as well. Uh, so you're yeah. not having to have that contact. Yeah. And particularly theatrical. I mean, you're, uh, yeah. you're, you're in a cinema where this kind of stuff unfolds on the screen. Yeah. I wonder if, I wonder if you, you've got me thinking, Maddie, about, 
then the protective mechanisms that we use, such as, you know, probably we do it ourselves, meditating on death um, and that fine line between going down that path of um, quite quite dark um, personal uh, thoughts of um, what it would be like to end your life, what it would be like to, um, to, to go down that vortex. Um, I know everyone's going to have different, experiences with with suicidal thoughts or whether they whether they look at it from a intellectual point of view um or whether they've experienced themselves uh, I, i'm also fascinated in it um in, the, in that link and and how close they are the the lining between them um i mean the subject is very transient but i mean it, it, the yeah, death itself is is transient it's a very transient fickle line that separates being alive from from you know from being dead, people who have um, with, you know ex- experienced death and on that level um, have probably felt something very acute, mm. almost like they've seen something that not everyone will see. Mm. Mm. And 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 on that, it, it, you know, when when you are face to face with death and when you have seen death mm-hmm. over and over and over again. It's really interesting to see, um, and I'm talking from personal experience and from and from people that we've that we've spoken to, the the, the mental health, the suicidality, the anxiety. Really, it, it goes one or two ways. It either becomes this this construct where where, where they where they where they will avoid and use their defences and never really you know jump into that void. But on the other hand, you know there are people that, that witness death that, that also don't make it themselves. You know, they, 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 they fall you know, victim of, of ending their, their own life, you know, mm. either years on or, or, or soon mm. after. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's that grappling, it's that grappling with, with circumstance. I, I'm trying to understand yeah. someone's, someone's death and, and people not being able to yeah. ever grapple with it. And you think about it, people who see death all the time, who see it every day, um, you know, for their, you know, for their jobs, police, ambulance workers, I mean, doctors, um, probably does become super repetitive. Um, but I guess deaths are also really singular in the sense mm. that everyone's death, like their life, is potentially intriguing can reveal things, has secrets and lots of fascinating things attached um, to it. I mean, people die, you lose a lot. It's a bit like a library being burned down. Um, Mm. You know, there's a lot of things that people take with them uh, to their graves, which is why, I guess, in that sense, I mean, every death is singular. I mean, everyone is... um, the death of a person because yeah you you take a lot to your grave that even you know the closest person in your life mm. will never be able to know or communicate to the rest of the world um mm. but but so then the question is what are the things that you want to know out of someone's library <laughs> who who is obviously knowing that you can't know everything you have to kind of pick and choose like you do in a eulogy um, mm. but you know, what is it for you? Is it like achievements or job or what or relationships? What is it? 
you asking what's the thing about people's lives that I'm most interested about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything. Yeah, but you can't say everything. Really? No, but it <laughs> doesn't count. You can't say everything. You, the answer is... It, Glasses are off. You, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need another drink before I answer this. Um, what's the main thing? Well, depending on what level you're thinking about it or thinking about someone else um i guess it's wondering why people do certain things why do people behave in certain ways um you know why did this person decide to do this why did they decide to do that what did they about this how did um x y and z really affect them really shape them um I mean, yeah, achievements, obviously, I'm interested in. And from, I mean, from doing a lot of genealogical type stuff and trying to um, find out as much as I can about the lives of, you know, family members who I didn't know. I mean, yes, a lot of it does come down to wanting to know um, about births and about marriages. Um, Dates, yeah. So, yeah dates so 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 and i mean i guess on an analytical level um it's probably all of that stuff that really um makes every human life truly interesting truly worth um investigating and looking at um and creatively at least um i love to draw cemeteries i love to draw graves um and I love to draw from old photographs, which for me is always like a process of um, recovering someone, almost bringing them back mm -hmm. to life and trying to um, piece together little fragments and bits and pieces in the hope that it builds a larger picture that you can almost come to know someone through um, the act of rebuilding and recreating. But the conundrum remains the same in that um, every person's life is a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. Question. But marriages is, it's funny because marriages, it's, it's actually not as reductive um, because marriage is love. So, and, and, you know, relationships are everything. Like you mentioned at the start, you know, that fear of dying alone. That, that's really yeah. what it comes down to at the end of the day is relationships. Yes, yes. Yeah, love and death. That's, yeah. They're the, two, they're the two subjects. I don't know how much time you've got, but I did actually pr prepare. I, I did prepare. I, I think it might be a nice way to end because yeah. we've talked about love and death. Um, the poem by Larkin, which I thought I'd read. Mm. If, if Great. Yeah, would, I would love that. Yeah. If you'd allow me to. Um, yeah. Did I mark the page of the poem? No, I didn't. All right. Put some, put some suspenseful music in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Get some classical on. Um, <laughs> no, it's, call, it's called An Arundel Tomb um, by Philip Larkin. Um, he says, 
Side by side, their faces blurred, the Earl and Countess lie in stone, their proper habits vaguely shown, as jointed armour stiffened, complete, and that faint hint of the absurd, the little dogs under their feet. Such plainness of the pre-baroque hardly involves the eye until it meets his left hand gauntlet still, clasped empty in the other, and one sees, with a sharp tender shock, his hand withdrawn, holding her hand. They would not think to lie so long, such faithfulness in effigy was just a detail friends would see, the sculptor's sweet commissioned grace thrown off in helping to prolong the Latin names around the base. They wouldn't guess how early in their supine stationary voyage the air would change to soundless damage, turn the old tenantry away, how soon succeeding eyes begin to look, not read, Rigidly, they persisted linked through lengths and breadths of time. Snow fell undated. Light each summer thronged the glass. A bright litter of bird calls strewed the same bone-riddled ground. And up, and up the paths, the endless altered people came, washing at their identity. Now helpless in the hollow of an unmemorial age, a trough of smoke and slow suspended schemes above their scrap of history. Only an attitude remains. Time has transfigured them into untruth. The stone fidelity they hardly meant has come to be their final blazon and to prove our almost instinct, almost true, what will survive of us is love. Larkin wrote that about he would go for cemetery walks on Sundays. He liked to go to church graveyards and little sleepy English sort of seaside towns. And he wrote that at a cemetery of, of, of a husband and wife um, where, yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of his poems just talking about Larkin, I mean, do deal with um, death and mortality. And particularly for him, the great anxiety that was brought on by that because he was an, because he was an atheist um, mm. and the, the, the struggles he felt as an atheist. But, um, yeah, our almost instinct, almost true, is what will survive of us is love. But that's, um, yeah, the, the, the most central thing, the redeeming factor, probably. Mm. I love it. It's a really good way to end. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you have anything else so. to say? Uh, anything that you kind of wanted to talk about that? Um, we didn't address. Um, of course there is, Maddie. There's, there's hours and hours and hours. I know, I know. It's a stupid question, isn't it? But I just, I, yeah. Well, pr pr I, probably, no, I was just going to say, I mean, is there anything else? I mean, yeah, I think it's always about um, creating art out of, um, out of the the terror of death, of creating things mm. in spite of it, whether whether we hope to almost defy death by the things that we do in life, or whether we feel that with um, you know the things that we make, the deeds we do, we can um, you know survive death, outlive it. Um, but I suppose, yeah, I guess we live with 
the the, the realization that um, you know our bodies begin to break apart and we disassemble and eventually become nothing more essentially but we know that we are actually something more there is something more something we're always striving for something we're always trying to reach even though we can't say what it is even though we know that eventually mm. there is nothing more yeah we know wow that that's there so is something more that's and so we, well put yeah yeah, yeah. and, and we and we and we we probably die trying to figure it out mm. and we know that often we will die and we won't have it figured out but we still will have to be engaged in the in the the whole the whole pursuit for its own sake yeah. that's right that was making sense of chaos a podcast about death dying love grief and hope Produced by Maddie Bragel and Jason Wheel. Thank you for listening. 